Welcome to the Chris Two Cent Eric Podcast. I'm Eric. I am Chris Chase. Well, what we've been talking about in the last few episodes is true in the political and cultural arenas. In this episode, we want to turn the lens a little bit closer to home. I grew up in the church and both Chris and I have worked in faith spaces for almost our entire adult lives. In the wake of the Me Too movement, we saw the rise of the Church Too movement, started by Emily Joy and Hannah Pash. As the dam broke, we saw stories from thousands and thousands of women about the abuse and harm that men in positions of power within the church community did to them. Some of these leaders were celebrities within Christian circles, like Bill Hybels and Ravi Zacharias, but most of them were leaders that you've never heard of. In light of that, we wanted to dedicate a conversation episode to talk about Me Too and Church Too. We quickly realized as two men, it probably wasn't best for us to be leading the conversation and that we need to learn first before talking about it ourselves. And so we invited two friends of ours to lead the conversation with us. First friend is Lisa Getze. She's a pastor and communicator, and she's on staff with us at the Meeting House at our Oakville Parish. And she's also one of our live stream hosts. Then we have Tiffany Bloom. Tiffany is the author of Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up. She's a co-host of the popular podcast, Why Though? And as a minority immigrant woman with an interracial family, she's passionate about women's equality, justice, and dignity. Now, this is part one of our conversation where we highlight Tiffany's book, which you can buy anywhere you buy books. And we talk a little bit about Lisa's story, and we hope that you enjoy it. So, Tiffany, I have a question for you. Hit me. So, you have a podcast with a friend of yours called Why Though? I do. And on that podcast, you describe yourselves as in between um, Mother Teresa yeah. and Biggie Smalls. I mean, it's a great place to be. I don't know why anyone wouldn't want to live there. So <laughs> I am a connoisseur of not, I wish I was a better connoisseur of Mother Teresa. I'm not. <laughs> but if you want to ask me questions about the notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Big Papa, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. You've got to call me Francis M.H. White. I'm that dude. So I got to ask this question because I was curious once I heard the podcast. What is your favorite Biggie song? How dare you even ask me to commit to such (laughs) a a commitment? I don't, I I refuse. I will not. You can't. What a push. What a push. That level. Soup that level. You know what's so funny? I have to just tell you, I was listening to Biggie at such an inappropriate age. I had to be five years old and I heard it on the radio and I thought to myself, I like this. I like this. No idea what he's singing about, right? And I'm just like, this is my jam. This is it for me. <laughs> so, so you're not going to give me a song. FM radio. I had a little, hold on, this is a really good story. I had a little AM, FM radio and in my room. And so at night, after my parents had left, I would turn it on. And it was in, in the Seattle area. It's called Cube 93.3. And it was the rap, rap R&B station. I would just listen all night. It was so bad. It was so bad. That's great. Great for an insomniac. At least I wasn't staring at a screen, right? There you go. There you go. Yeah, like like like, like the kids today. <laughs> but no, um, like, but you're not gonna give me. You're not gonna give me a song. You're not gonna give me. You're not gonna give me. Or give me a, a three. Maybe not one. But pick, uh, let me. Yeah. What, what's your? What's? Uh, you know, it's so funny because now I have to. There, there's. It's very hard to find radio edits for my children because I would never let them listen. I understand. <laughs> it is so hard to do. Oh um, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't want to admit, you have to remember, I'm a Christian author. I can't really want to be admitting that. I'm trying to dodge this on purpose, dog. I'm going to need you to read the room here. Um, 
Okay, well, okay, as, as, as a minister of the gospel, as somebody who cares about the, the scriptures, I would say that my favorite one is unbelievable, without a doubt. Mm, so I, so I, so I will take that for, punch for you. You, t- you take that bullet for me. I'll take the bullet for you. But I just want to say that uh, d- considering my subject content that we're about to dive into, I think Fair it is enough. irony that we're going to be talking about. Fair enough. Like, Very oh, true. I don't know if I can do that. Very yeah. true. So then, so then, let, let, then we're just irreverent, in. is what we're getting. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we say that somewhere in between the Holy of Holies, Mother Teresa, inner sanctum courts of the Lord, mm. and and just and just rather irreverent. But and we have a clean rating on on Apple Podcasts. There you go. Right? There you go. It's, it's, like all, it's all about this. It's all about the, the beeps. Like all about the yeah. beeps. That matters. So yeah. so you well, you've written this book. You've written this book, Pray Tell, um, and I consumed it in maybe two sittings over the mm. course of the weekend. Parts one and part two were like punches to the gut. Like a continual sort of like, oh God, okay, this is, okay. Come up for part, air. Yeah, I was just going to go for a walk with my family, just hold yeah. my kids, <laughs> hold my daughter, just learn over things, gonna be okay. And then, you know, part three um, speaks to kind of a little bit of some hope that can be becoming, that, yeah. that we can all kind of hold on to and walk, walk towards. And this this book that you've written is not it's it's timeless, but it's also timely. Yeah, like it's something that's, that speaks to whatever era that somebody can read it in, but it's also timely. And um, this past week, we saw brutal murders of of six Asian women, eight people in general, at the hands of a twenty one year old who was trying to rid himself of impurity. Yeah, temptation. Yeah, right. All the sort of stuff. So you write this, you write this book, and then almost like clockwork, this sort of happens. Where does your where does your mind go? Where 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 does your like, their thought process go when you're kind of watching the news, and you're holding this book, and you know that you're going to be on multiple calls talk about the book, and at the same time, this real life thing happens. Yeah, I would say what the alarms that are going off in my mind are: this is not exclusively a feminine issue. This is an issue that requires men and women to enter into partnership to create equitable spaces because what happens is you swing the pendulum one side and you've got like the Billy Graham, Mike Pence rule. Women can't be in the room. and um, But then of course that's subjugation because it keeps women out of decision-making spaces. And then you swing it the other way and you have, we need to eliminate women because they're a temptation. Both treat women as second. Both treat women as commodities to be used, abused, harassed, or murdered. And both are problematic. And, you know, research shows that the abuse of power at a woman's expense is the greatest factor in a woman's career. It it can derail her financially, professionally, obviously her reputation, spiritually, relationally. This is a dangerous issue. And I was saying that two weeks ago before this shooting, Mm -hmm. and I'm still saying it now. We must understand how the gospel has been weaponized to advance patriarchy, patriarchal structures, because if we don't, we'll suffer in immeasurable ways as women and men. The, the weaponizing of the gospel is a, is a real thing, right? Yeah. Um, um, I happen to be a minority, and the history of being a minority is having the gospel weaponized against people who look like me. Yeah. Um, just, just to be able to maintain power. You talk a lot about power in, in, in your book. Um, and you talk a lot about power in, in your podcast it, 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 as a part of, of that narrative that, you're, that, you've been, that you've been sharing. Can you explain 
for the person who doesn't understand that this is actually a thing, that there's actual power structures that make it easier for some and harder for others. Can you explain a little bit what that power dynamic looks like? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a book not about like sexual harassment and assault. It's really a book about power and mm-hmm. the abuse of power to women's expense. So the power dynamics that um, I, I personally have researched and explored and um, kind of camp on are the power dynamics of gender, which between men and women, the power dynamics of race, the power dynamics of physical size, the power dynamics of class, and the power dynamics of citizenship. So, you know, an immigrant or green card holding woman is going to experience abuse of power differently than a resourced white woman who is known in her community. The, and the response to her harm or the abuse of power will likely be varied depending on who speaks up and how they speak up and simply because of who they are and how they operate in the world. So those are the complex power dynamics we all walk and operate in. And some of us are more aware of them than others. You know, traditionally men have gleaned and benefited from power structures that uphold them. It's financially beneficial. It is beneficial in their relationships. They continually hold the power. So there's not a great cost to abusing those power dynamics. Uh, you know, nothing could happen and everything's going to be just fine. But for a woman, when those power dynamics are leveled against her, she's robbed of her identity. She's robbed of her voice. And mm-hmm. she is, you know, grasping for ways to speak up or just kind of have her personhood validated. And it will often be used against her. So you think of, of Harvey Weinstein. And one of his uh, victims was Rowena Chu. And she stayed silent for like 20 years. Um, and she was living in London at the time. She was a 20-something, and she worked as an assistant. And he was chasing her around the room and cornered her and tried to pressure her into sex acts. And she stayed silent. She said, I wish people would have understood. She's Asian-American. She's like, I wish people would have understood just being Asian and the subservient stereotype that people have on Asian women or even just hypersexual when demanded. And then also you play into his physical size. He was a super huge guy. And here I was, you know, barely five foot and weight and class and obviously resources and his prestige and platform. All of these things come into play of how we see people, how we see people who have power and how we see people who have don't, who don't. And we have fallen into this believability. We will believe somebody if they have any semblance of power that means something to us. And so many women, especially women of color, will often contort themselves to fit into the dominant narrative or the dominant culture, not simply because they want to be the coolest cat on the block, but they simply want to belong. And Mm -hmm. so they'll dress and talk and act like those in the dominant culture. And it will often become so ingrained that they're conditioned to do so as an adult in the workplace, at church, every place we work and worship in such a way that constantly bends toward patriarchal structures where men will continue to hold power and women. So often we just feel lucky to be in the room and lucky to be on the rung of power that we're not questioning how these systems are architected mm-hmm. and how wow. they could be architected for our good. Well, and they're all intertwined together. And I think 100%. that's even what we saw this past week where it was, you don't have to just pick one of the isms. Yeah, <laughs> Like intersection you can be sexist and racist you can be and like but that's tragic but the interplay like you're even talking about right now of all the systems put together makes it a lot messier to see and untangle I would don't you think it's interesting Lisa that this murderer 
was willing to admit that he committed murder, but wasn't willing to admit that he was racist. Like that was the most absurd thing to admit. And those who hold the power or who abuse the power in that situation, they don't get to decide the harm or what they've done. It's those who've been harmed and those who are watching who can call it out for what it is. And so even shifting that power dynamic of who gets to control the narrative is so valuable and necessary. So uh, that, 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 uh, the, the ability that somebody can, can choose what narrative they, when they're, when they are the criminal can say, actually, what I was doing was this irks me to, uh, anyhow, before I kind of like throw my computer across the room. Um, there, the, the, the idea that, um, people would, that especially, um, females would feel like I can't say anything. So I'm going to sit in this abuse, abusive situation because that's the only way that I can, if, because I'm holding the door for somebody else or because I am providing a way for somebody else who doesn't have to go through the same thing as, as me, I'll, I'll, I'll withstand this because I'm doing something good for somebody else. I don't know how else to say this, but why? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's the primary objective or prerogative. I think it's, it's self-preservation. I think it is wanting to ensure that this woman, if we're going to use this example, take this to the, versus holding the door open, ensuring that she gets to stay in the room. And if she's got bills to pay and babies to feed, you bet she's going to do what she can to stay in the room. I think, you know, I can think of times where if I didn't laugh at a coarse joke at my own expense, I knew that I would lose the next invitation into that decision-making room. Or I knew that I would lose that potential promotion that was on the horizon if I was like, hey, man, that's inappropriate. Not saying I feel like you're being inappropriate because this, this is not a subjective situation. It's objectively, you, this is an inappropriate situation. So it's not me raising the flag of insecurity to say, hey, I'm really uncomfortable. No, this is uncomfortable. You have made this an uncomfortable situation. That's a great differentiation. And I think it's, it can be hard for those you may call that out to, to recognize Mm -hmm. it's like, actually like I'm fine, but what you're saying is not okay. Period. Yes. Because women are so easily labeled as insecure or emotional or, Oh, you're just not strong enough to handle the candor that's, that's required to Mm -hmm. be in this system. And reality Mm -hmm. is actually, this is just inappropriate, just inappropriate. And you're taking advantage of your platform and your place. Why do you think that men and even organizations are so resistant to that sort of being brought up, right? That this is uncomfortable or this doesn't feel right to me. And we tend to minimize it and downplay it, certainly on a personal level and also organizationally, like this isn't really happening. Where does that come from? First of all, it's just downright advantageous. If the majority of people holding power are men, why on earth would you sacrifice that power? Why would you choose humility willingly when you are benefiting from this hamster wheel? Like, why on earth would you do that? So just basic, just love of power, I think, is part of it. But I think also, if there isn't enough women in the room, if, if half the room isn't women, then they're not seeing the, a, a larger point of view. They're seeing one individual point of view. And it's easier to write off one person's experience than it is to examine the whole system and assume and accept that it's broken. Mm. We had an experience where we had a training video that we were being shown. And 
watched it and my feedback, I was immediately like, like some of these jokes, they weren't like inappropriate necessarily. It was in a context of a sort of a Christian leadership training, but they were definitely misogynistic, you know, kind of jokes, you know, the default about your wife is like this and now you're married and your life is like this and whatever, right? It was played for laughs, but it didn't land right. And so I was in a couple of conversations. Was this on VHS? It it felt like it should be. It felt like it should be. And I sort of, I sort of raised that. I'm like, why are we watching this? Right. That's for sure. Yeah. I was like, why are we, why are we listening to this? Why are we watching this? Like I get that the overall point is, is supposed to be helpful. Like the thing he's talking about, we're supposed to be gleaning from that and ignoring this part. But why are we doing that? Why are we listening to something where we have to just ignore this stuff to get to the good stuff? I feel like in churches, we've done that for so long where it's like, oh, well, we're going to overlook these things because this other part is better. Yeah. Um, but I know talking to Lisa about it, like I texted her almost immediately and was like, I feel like this is a problem. And then she watched and she's like, yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a problem. <laughs> and But it made such a difference knowing that somebody like Lisa and other people in our organization were there and it was like, okay, I know that their perspective is there. And, and so then when we raised it, people were much more receptive because there was that sort of, um, there was enough people in the room that it wasn't just one person, um, you know, and, and it wasn't just, you know, Lisa having to raise it or somebody mm-hmm. or another woman in our organization, right? And I think that makes such a big difference. But yeah, we so often do that. Okay, we'll just ignore this part because the other things that they're saying or the other things the organization is doing is so good. We, mm-hmm. we should just pretend this isn't there. Yeah, I think we practice some euphoric recall of we'll remember the good parts of an organization, an experience, a relationship at the detriment of the harm or the inappropriate nature. And we're like, yeah, but look at all of the good things. And we do this with faith leaders, right? We've done this with uh, Bill Hywolds. We've done this with Carl Lentz. We've done this with John Christ. We've done this with fill in the blank, so many people, Robbie Zacharias. And, and we've done it with this in, in mainstream culture as well. We're like, but this person's done so much good. We can't negate all the good they did because they there's some foul play. And in reality is nobody's arguing that this person ever was good or was capable of good or benevolent or generous or kind. That's not for debate. The reality is we have to deal with the information and the evidence that we're presented. And if that is foul or dark or harmful, again, we're not negating the good, but which is so many of us have been groomed, culturally conditioned, to just promote and lean into the goodness of somebody versus acknowledging somebody's inherent sin nature that we, again, we just default to the good. It's the shock. I was joking before we were, the three of us were chatting before you joined. It was like, it's this like shock. Like there might be sin in the church. What? There's like, how did what? we get there? There's like this idea of like you, we are all humans that yeah. make mistakes, but how do we say like, we see those both, those multiple sides of you, but this yeah. part of you, we recognize needs to be transformed, healed. You need to recognize that it needs to be transformed, yeah. And healed. Yeah. All the other stuff you've done is amazing. Mm-hmm. And we applaud and you, think, but it's not a block from what, like, it doesn't prevent you from being held accountable. That's right. And wouldn't you say it's a very dissonant reality to grasp in faith culture when somebody has introduced you to a relationship with the divine and you've had a beautiful experience with the Lord. And so it's very hard to believe that somebody who made a way for you to connect in your spiritual life 
would also be capable of harm. So when you bring Mm -hmm. that spiritual aspect into it, I think we almost are more willing to double down because then we want to call into question our positive affirming experience between us and the Lord. And that's, that's a hard thing to do. We don't want to believe that somebody who is dabbling in the work of God would be capable of that misfortune and be capable of those kind of acts. And so we will use that confirmation bias thinking there has to be something this woman did to deserve what happened to her. We, we employ this in both sacred and secular culture. There has to be something she did, did, did to deserve this because if not, I have to call into question who I've had my allegiance to. I have to call into question who I've given my trust to. And perhaps I didn't give that wisely. So again, it's that act of self-preservation because if something happened to her and she didn't deserve it, that could happen to me. And I gave somebody my money, my time, my, my ear when, when they deserve no such thing. I was a youth pastor for a, lo- for a lot of years. And one of the things that I was reading, reading the book, I had to stop and take account onto all of the purity culture that was taught to me that I then unknowingly with the best of intentions, best of talk intentions. to my students. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the amount, of, the amount of young women who would have heard from my lips about clothing and dressing and things like that, because that's what I heard from me. And I, you know, that's what I heard preach, preach to me. And this whole idea of like creating, creating you, 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 you talk about David Bathsheba and how many people have spoken that story and likely have taken it on the side of David's redemption. 100%. And not at all leaned in even an, a, a fraction on what it was like to be Bathsheba at all. Yeah. And so reading this book, and then what I was talking about earlier about like this, these, these body punches in parts one and part two, because I'm like, I, 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 did, I did that. Like I preached this stuff, mm. right? And, and so you have this, this moment of awakening where you're like, oh my gosh, like that, that was, that was not helpful. That is not what I went to school for. Right. Yeah. Uh, and fortunately, like on this side of heaven, we have the ability to kind of redeem those moments and do yeah, better right. with, with whoever that's was right. around us. But there are still some who would see this and go, I don't know what you're talking about, Tiffany. When I read this, when I do this, and there still is a, and there's still a, there's still a purity culture. You know, we, you know, I think that we're of the same space of time where I kiss dating goodbye was a thing and purity rings were, were a thing and yeah. all this sort of stuff. I mean, I know a guy who true actually- True love like, weights. True love That's weights. That's the one I was thinking of. All and the bride wore white. Right. All the, all those, I think the rose ceremonies and all these <laughs> sort of things and whatnot. And the rose ceremony before the bachelor stole it and then made, yeah. made it their own thing, right? <laughs> they right. corrupted our plans. Who wants the rose? Who would take this rose? Right, this all this sort of stuff, right? All those petals off, make right where the petals broken. <laughs> like, well. just think about like like even the brokenness of thinking about the guys. I want you guys to take this. Does this you? Yeah, and it's never to the guy. It's never to the guy, but it's always yeah. to the girl. Going, this is you. Yeah. Who would want this? Um, and there's there's young there's young women and young men who have left the church because at a certain moment in their lives, they're like, this is absolute, this is crazy. And it's destroyed me. Yeah. It's, I, I want nothing to do with this. And there are people who would still preach this yeah. regularly. This whole, whole idea of, you know, the Billy Graham rule and that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And where, where do you see, the, is there a, could there ever be a shift there? Like what would it take for someone to kind of go like, this is wrong. This is not helpful. This is actually hurting people. Yeah. I think a, a deep 
excavation of the scriptures to see how that Greco-Roman influence in the first century allowed the culture of the time to infiltrate the church rather than the church shaping the culture. Mm. And so as those early church fathers uh, chose culture over Jesus, over the words and example and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we have this belief that women are deformed men or women are the presence of evil. And if you bet a woman, you, you're, you're the one who is now giving yourself over to less. So all those, all that messaging that we have packaged and then you take in Martin Luther in the time of the Reformation and the printing press and how that brought that propaganda into homes, not just preached on Sunday, but then read in the home. And so a woman's world became even smaller and she was now just responsible to serve and honor her husband above all. Her job was to serve him. So again, that subjugation, that that treating women as second. And then of course you see it in purity culture, which was a response to the sexual revolution of the seventies and eighties. But it, again, just as you said, it swung that pendulum too far to say, instead of having critical discourse on what do the scriptures invite us to do? Not a patriarchal view of the scriptures, but when we look at Jesus, how do we see partnership? How do we see honoring men and women working together for human flourishing? And instead we're like, nope. You know, you Mm -hmm. think of abstinence training. I believe the state of Texas still uses abstinence training over sexual education, and it's the highest rate of teen pregnancy in the United States of America. Okay. And so it, it really has done some damage. That purity culture, that belief just don't have it. So we're not arming boys or girls with an understanding of a healthy identity. And then we've also allowed boys, as just you said, you know, waving that rose that's got the petals torn off or the heart ripped apart of the construction paper heart. And then we tape it back together. You know, just all these things that we did that now we research shows that so many women who grew up and they were 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 during the purity culture movement, they often show symptoms of post-traumatic stress and sexual abuse, even though they never had wow. it happen. So they're walking to the same shame and guilt and emotions and their body response, the same as if they had been sexually abused. I mean, this is, this is tragic. This is not mm-hmm. the will of God. So we need to be able to look at the scriptures, not through a patriarchal view, not, not seeing that, that the advancement of the gospel or a place in life is only for a man's body and a man's ideas and a man's brain, but also for women. And the way that we see Jesus protect the woman caught in adultery, he protected her body and reputation before Mm. he told her to go and sin no more. Let's not forget how often he put himself in the situation, put himself in harm's way to protect and and honor another woman. And there's there's other examples of him doing that in scripture, but that one just is so vivid when we think of that Mm -hmm. story. Uh, So just, I think we can do this and I think we can do it by inviting boys to understand that they're not to dominate anyone, other boys or specifically girls, another's time, reputation, physical space, or body. Each person is the boss of their body. And we make consent this dirty word, but what if our four and five-year-olds knew, I don't get to be all up in somebody's grill. I don't get to be mm-hmm. pushing right. down unless they've invited me to be in that space, that emotional awareness. Now, here's the kicker. Here's the kicker, Chris. So many boys during the purity culture movement were told, if you can just keep it together, if you can just not give in and watch porn and do dirty things and all these things, you're going to be blessed with this smoking hot wife. So the message that the girls in that and the pews received was, I have to be modest. 
if, if a boy stumbles, it's my fault. We're telling this to 13 year olds, mind you, who right. are going through puberty. So they're thinking that all this guilt and shame and that if something bad happens to me, it's because some, uh, it, the onus is on me to escape that abuse of power more than it's on men to behave justly. This is on me. I did something to invite this. I'm inherently evil, that depraved theology, right? But then when they're married, they're supposed to be a goddess. And then there's a, there's a, a weight limit and their appearance expectations and they're they're now this exterior validation that those good men got because they were faithful or they were righteous. So we've just flip-flopped it. You better be modest as hottest and then you better be a goddess. And it's like, well, neither of these are honoring to her <laughs> inherent worth or dignity. We're not a four by four or a Harley Davidson. We're not some trophy. We are created in the image of God. Well, you're not yeah. a trophy unless you're that guy out in out in the states, who's like, you need to be like Melania Trump. Oh my ladies, gosh, ladies and gentlemen, oh. <laughs> the the trophy, unless you're that guy. The picture he chose as he rested his iPad on his beer belly. I mean, <laughs> what? I just clearly he did not have those same aspirations for himself. <laughs> so. Clearly, clearly yes. different. Just an example of different standards, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but I, I think. I think there's so much damaging messaging there. I mean, I grew up in a pretty fundamentalistic sort of Christian culture. And so purity culture was the big thing, but so many different damaging messages, part of it being just this sense that for, for guys that you were just a walking sort of like sex machine and that like you, all of that was just uncontrollable. And it was honestly on women. It was on everybody else to sort of manage that. If they looked the wrong, looked at you the wrong way, or they wore the wrong outfit, then there was nothing you could do. So it was entirely their responsibility. Yeah. You know, we, we're always sort of transferring responsibility to anybody except for ourselves. Um, and then when you got married, well, if you were looking at porn or you were unhappy in your marriage, well, the problem was that your wife wasn't having enough sex with you. So she yeah. was not sexy enough, or she wasn't supposed to be sexy before, and now she wasn't, yeah. now she's not being sexy enough. Um, and just completely unfair to women, but even on some of the smaller scale stuff, like I, I grew up in a culture where you didn't go to movie theaters, you didn't go to bars and you weren't in a room alone with a woman who wasn't your wife. Like those were the things that, you know, those were, because those were places where you would go and bad things would happen. <laughs> Which I mean, did you, get to, I, did you get to go to the prom? Just tell me, do you have prom? Did you get to go to I the did, prom? I did go to prom. I actually left early. I get, it wasn't my scene, but I didn't get to go. <laughs> I didn't even get but, to go to prom because that's where bad things happen. Babies are made at prom when you dance, yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you're saying, can't go to the yeah. movies, can't go to bars, but it's like, like you're going to meet normal people there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. but that messaging, that messaging yeah. was the thing that, so now that I'm an adult, I'm, you know, in ministry and I'm, want to be you know mentoring and working alongside women and I you know I absolutely think you know there should be like 50 percent 51 percent of you know my team should be women and all these things right and and I work towards that but at the same time there's always this little voice in the back of my head when I'm having a one-on-one meeting with a woman or something like that and it's like this is a bad situation and like the thing that actually makes me think that is not that like anything about the situation but it's actually, this is what I was taught. And like, I, Lisa, you were telling a story the other day. You can't control yourself because you're in a yeah. room right. alone woman. You're like, oh my, like, you're like nothing's going to happen. Yeah. But the thought, the, the reason the thought shows up is not because anything, like there's anything in the room, but because yeah, but of someone this thing told from you, you should be 20 aware years ago that I should be yeah. aware, right? And I, I just, I would love to hear for you guys, like how does that, 
how does that show up from your side of the table, right? Like, what are the things that you experience where you're like, I would love to be, man, I would love to be on the leadership team. I'd love to be a part of this. And even well-meaning people are being weird about this. <laughs> yeah. Lisa, I'd love to hear your <laughs> Well, I shared that. one um, when we were ta- talking before, like a friend of mine who was probably 10 years younger than me. So he was probably mid thirties or mid twenties. I was mid thirties and I was driving us somewhere and both like Christian friends. And he's like, Oh, well, I don't sit in the front passenger seat. If a woman's driving (laughs) or if I'm driving, I won't, if I'm driving, the woman can't sit in the front seat with me. Is this honoring or is this creepy? (laughs) Because I'm like, we're friends. Like, this is no, there's like, no, (laughs) you're 10 years younger than me. We are just buddies. You're like my little brother. You just all of a sudden sexualized a situation where I saw none of that. We're just friends. And so it was, but it was this weird thing inside of me saying like, I should feel honored because I know why he's choosing Mm. this, but I also feel really creeped out that this is why you're telling me this because of the narrative you've been played out all along was extra caution don't be alone with women yeah not a good idea so it was that was like a weird one for sure (laughs) you know what's interesting is that every situation is different right like that would have been especially if it's I mean it's we were also told I'm sure I'm sure this is going through your mind Eric but just the appearance of evil right we didn't want the appearance of impropriety and I honor that. I do. I honor that. But not at the expense where women are left out of decision-making rooms or conversations. That's where it gets dicey. Um, but the but the fact that this turned into an Uber, <laughs> somebody had to sit in the back. I mean, it's just a different, that's interesting. Um, and I think, I think even like, you know, is it going to be like a day long drive or is it 10 minutes down the road to lunch? Like I just, it's so interesting how people process like what's appropriate and what's not. Because then I think the flip side of that, and I just, I was thinking, Eric, as you described that situation of you sitting across from somebody on your ministry team, who's a woman, I was, um, I had a speak engagement. I'll just say somewhere in the Midwest of America. And after I spoke on a Sunday morning service at this mega church, I walk into uh, the green room that they had set up for me, get a bottle of water. And the senior pastor followed me in there and closed the door behind him. So I'm in the middle of nowhere. I don't know this guy from Adam. And I'm just all like, why did he close the door? Like I would have been so fine chatting with him if the door was open. And it wasn't that like, I didn't want to be alone. It was the appearance, but it was the clear imbalance of power and somebody Mm. I didn't really know. And now I'm in this door with him and there's no windows. There's nobody can look into it or anything like that. It was more of like, if he says or does anything again, it was because there was no relationship there. There was no confidence in one another that we really had. And he's like, I'd love to give you some feedback. So there was even a power play of like, here's what you just Mm. said. And here's what I think. And it was, it just, you know, it's caught me off guard. And then again, but it was just the fact that, and I watched him behind him close the door as he looked at me and it was like, huh. So do I want to be in decision-making rooms? Do I want to be left out? No, I don't don't want to be left out. I want to be in those rooms. 51%. Absolutely. But I think as men, it is valid to be aware of how you come across because it's not like you're this this sex maniac who just wants to be alone with anyone you can get your hands on. No. And and how 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 disrespectful to men, honestly, that we believe right. that low of you in this area of your life and give you that free pass. But at the same time, I think the encouragement is be aware. Just be aware of how the woman in the room might feel. I think we have to switch that lens and hey, I wonder how she's feeling that, you know, 
it's the two of us for the next two hours, or maybe it's just an hour, you yeah. know, just thinking of like, I wonder what's going through her mind right now. Um, and being able, being able to just read the room and read her nonverbal cues. I mean, if men just read the nonverbal cues, that 80% communication, I think we'd be <laughs> farther along in this conversation yeah, yeah. than we already are. Yeah. Yes. Which recently has been something that's come up in conversation in my work, in our workplace has been like, because there are more women in these scenarios, the reading of that body language or the creep meter <laughs> or whatever you want to call it is more fine-tuned because there yes. are women in the room making decisions, meeting new people, who fits on this team, which I know it's the joke, the joke of like men just somehow miss these signals, but like women have this extra sense of being like, okay, we like, is this normal? Or is this, is this something we should be cautious about or someone we should be cautious about? How did you feel around this person? Right. Which, I think a big part of that is, both for Chris and Lisa, they were tell, they've, they've told me this before, that because Chris is a minority and Lisa's a woman, that for them, when they walk into a room, they have to they have to go, who's in charge here? Is this a safe room? Like all these different things, right? There's a lot of right, things that they're 100%. processing, right? Whereas I don't have to be nearly as attuned to that because I'm the center of the circle of the wheel of power, right? Like, I mean, I, I, I check all, all the boxes right there. No, so this I, podcast, though. On this podcast, I am in the center of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's, you know, we say, oh, men are clueless. But in some ways, they like white men just aren't doing that work because they've never had to do that work, right? They just, yeah. they, their senses are not into reading all of that because it just doesn't happen that way. Oh my gosh. So well said. So that's, we should have talked before I finished that book. Cause that is so beautifully said. I think men haven't had white males haven't had the invitation to consider their proximity to power because they've held so much of it for so long, historically in every sector of society. That was quite the conversation we've been having so far, Chris. Yeah, it, it was. But the thing that kind of I'm paying more attention to is the fact that you were so wisely willing to edit it with you being sort of the last sort of key voice there. So I'm, I'm already ready for you to kind of like cut me off the show and it becomes the Eric Two Cent podcast. I'm prepared for it now. I see what's happening. I read the writing on the wall, my friend. I read it. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to being included in the reprint of Pray Tell <laughs> version 2.0 when she includes my quote. You're gonna be you're gonna be writing the forward and the N word. That's that's gonna be that's gonna be the word. I get it. I get it. I get it. That's fine. I'll, I'll I'll just stick to hopefully being getting getting a shout out on Instagram. That's that's where the money is nowadays. <laughs> but it was good. It was it was. I mean, it's, there's a little PTSD in there as we're kind of sharing stories of things that we've either experienced ourselves or watched people experience or things that we unintentionally led in um, based on our own our own previous ministry experiences mm -hmm. and so you know big thanks to tiffany and lisa for being willing to sit with us and being willing to kind of share their thoughts on 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 these important issues mm -hmm. yeah i think there's so much there for those of us who grew up in the church and some of the messages that we received and i think that even ties in with what we're talking about in the last episode about these sort of narratives that we have and how powerful they are and to, to shape our way of thinking about um, what's right and what's wrong and who's good and who's bad and even how we feel about ourselves and what's okay or not okay for ourselves and the importance of doing that work of sort of 
um, unpacking the narratives that we have in our lives and saying, actually, is this thing helpful for me or do I need to let this go? Is it causing harm to me? And is that causing me to cause harm to other people? Um, and I think that's just such an important thing. I think Tiffany and Lisa, hearing those other stories and those perspectives, right, are really help all of us to do that work. And just for you who are listening, just to make sure to you know, like, so wherever you buy your books, we would recommend that you order this book, Pray Tell, Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up. Read it, study it, and you might not necessarily agree with it because you might not think it's a problem. Or you might be like, I'm so happy that a book like this has finally been written. Whichever side of the coin you fall on, this is a book that you need to be reading because we need to be paying attention to the fact that these are real stories. Tiffany's stories and the research that she's done is, is telling stories that are real of women who have experienced major trauma. Uh, and many of them have experienced that in Christian church circles. So we recommend that you, that you pick up that book wherever you can. Follow her on, on Instagram. Catch, catch wind of, of, of her life and get connected to that so we can all be better. Yes. And so while you're following Tiffany on Instagram, make sure you also follow Lisa Getze there and on Twitter and all the spaces. And also just uh, stick around and keep your eyes open for part two of this episode of the podcast as we continue our conversation with Lisa and Tiffany. This has been the Chris Toussaint Eric podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to leave a five-star review. You can catch up with me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. I'm at Eric for Slewis in all those spaces. And you can find me on all socials by simply searching the word that Chris Chase, one word. You can also find me with my goon squad putting in work at the House of Commons show on both YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Both Chris and I are regular contributors to the Meeting House blog. You can find the work that we do there at themeetinghouse.com slash blog. Special thanks goes out to CAT for providing the musical soundtrack for this podcast. You can hear more from CAT by finding them on Bandcamp or Metapop. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.